This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is August 22nd, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Karen Montalbano. Um, I was there probably from about 1976, 77 to 1980. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us and thank you for coming back for this interview. It's always uh, a real pleasure to talk to you and, and I'm excited to hear your stories. Well, thank you for having me. So just a quick reminder, uh, could you tell us the positions or titles that you had at the station at the time? So I was assistant executive engineer and then became executive engineer my senior year of college. Um, I did a whole bunch of shows, um, everything from, let's see, I didn't, I created an Italian show. I produced a radio drama called The Reindeer Who Couldn't Fly. And then I did the standard shows of the jazz spectrum, even song changes. Mm. Um, and I also, my start was as a remote opera, uh, remote engineer. So remote engineer, I did football games, basketball games, and Town of Hempstead concerts that mm. I remember. Mm. I remember from our last conversation, you talking about some of the football games and the equipment and, and some of the remote things. Is that what led you to become assistant executive engineer? How did that come about? It Actually, what, when I walked into the station, they said, the first thing you can do that would be really easy you can get into is remote engineering. Mm. So they showed me how to remote engineer and I took the big suitcases or at least one suitcase full of, you know, the metal stands, the Shure M67 mixer, the old microphones, which were all metal. And I'd lug it out of the basement Memorial Hall, put it in my car and go to wherever and set it up. Um, And then there was the executive engineer. His name was Tony Miller. And they said he can use help scheduling. Well, it seemed I could do the scheduling. I was pretty good at keeping the schedule full. And so then I became the assistant executive engineer. And then I guess because I could keep scheduling and I could teach people how to use the board and keep everything running, I became executive engineer. Hmm. Um, In talking about the scheduling, I, I think in the more recent generations, most people on the air are doing combo engineering, meaning they're running the board and announcing at the same time. But I think during that time period, there were a lot of uh, people who just came in and ran the board and maybe produced or engineered or or board operated for different announcers or different hosts. Is that right? Yes. Actually, most of the time, people, um, it was separate. Mm -hmm. So you had to be cleared to combo, as we called it. Um, And usually the combos... Um, where people people who comboed either were working late at night because you really couldn't get an engineer that would help you from the 11 to 2 a.m. shift. Mm-hmm. So it was best to have a person on that. Um, or people who had been doing it for a long time so that they were very comfortable at both an- handling the board and announcing. So it was you had to be cleared to combo. Mm. So um, the people that you were scheduling were the engineers or were you also scheduling the announcers and the hosts? No, the I was just the engineers, the announcers and hosts. Um, there was a chief announcer who mm-hmm. scheduled in people who would do the PSAs and the breaks. And then the hosts were scheduled according to shows, which the program, I think it was program operations director or the program director set the schedule of of what was go- show was going on when. Hmm. 
So you had uh, you know, the board operators, you had staff announcers, and you had hosts. And I guess everybody had to kind of coordinate on, on some level. There had to be some amount of teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In theory, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you showed up and... And, you know, you worked with the, the host would hand you, you, you would hand your record over to the person or you'd be able to, you know, give them a signal to call for the microphone that you were going to speak or just segue or, you know, whatever was going on. Or they'd give you like uh, 30 seconds left on the record, get ready to speak hmm. type of deal. Okay. Um, I want to double back again because I think I was talking to Stevie Mines and he was talking about the crypt. And I remember the crypt being in the basement of Memorial Hall, where, where while I was there in the 90s, there was the main office and then a series of smaller offices underneath uh, the cafeteria or the or bits and bites. Was that where the, the crypt was in the basement? It was sort of like a small closet right near a small staircase. Does that Does that sound familiar? Yes, it sounds very familiar. I think there was... Now, I'm trying to remember if the crypt was considered where they kept the old tapes um, of shows or, and I think that was it, um, but there also was a separate room where they kept all the remote operating equipment that was okay. also down there. Okay. All right. It's, it's coming together. I didn't, uh, when Stevie mentioned that, I, I said it could possibly be the same room, but it sounds, uh, it sounds like it, it may have been. So we were scattered all over the campus. <laughs> right. Right. Which is, you know, especially for folks who've, who've only known what I still call the new building where everything's coordinated and it's sort of a fishbowl situation and you can see the offices and you can see the production facilities. Um, your offices would have been upstairs in Memorial Hall. The crypt is downstairs, and the station itself, the studios, are across campus in the little theater. It's uh, you know in that basement. About- in that basement, so we yeah. were all over the place, up and down and across. So the coordination, you know, uh, again, uh, the intended coordination to make sure everybody's where they need to be is hopefully going to work. The intended coordination of if a show is on tape, and it needed mm. to be over from the crypt or from the office all the way over across to the station. So mm. you had to make sure that the tapes were there if a show was on tape and if it was not being done live. Mm. Mm. So many things to worry about. But, uh, but oh, and that was the other question I had. Um, what were the hours, uh, to the best of your recollection, that the station was on the air at the time? So originally when I started, it was something like from six o'clock to midnight during the week. And then I think 12 to midnight during the weekends. Mm -hmm. But there was talk of the FCC trying to share the 88.7 FM frequency with a competing college that wanted to be on. So I believe we extended from two to two during the week and from 12 to two on the weekend Okay. To, for broadcasting. And that became my problem because I was there as the extension went in and I had to fill more slots. <laughs> mm, mm. Always, always fun to find more bodies and, and yeah, uh, make sure that enough people were trained to do it. Yeah. Um, how long were the shifts for most of the board operators? Was it two or three hours? I believe it was about two hours. Okay. 
Okay, interesting. So you've got this experience as assistant executive engineer, and you've done the remote stuff. Uh, and then you mentioned as a senior, you were executive engineer. Why did you decide to apply for that? So that's an interesting story. I really didn't apply for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was tired of scheduling, and I applied for everything else. And I was told, well, no, you're best as executive engineer. So that's what I got. Was this a conversation you had with Jeff? No, it was a conversation I had with Jim Helfgott. What happened is we had um, in the office, there was a little area. It was kind of almost like a safe. Um, it had no windows. Hmm. And it was kind of a place where when you wanted to have a private conversation with someone outside of the office area, they'd bring you in there and they'd close the door. Hmm. And... Jim Helfgott brought me in there and he said, um, which I didn't quite believe, that I was not uh, fit for the other jobs, the three top jobs the that I had applied for, but executive engineer was what I was going to get. Okay. So was Jim the outgoing station manager at the time? Or, yes. Okay. So um, do you remember who got those other positions uh, those years as uh, station manager and program director? I believe Scott Cinnamon became station manager. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember if Sue Zizzo became the program director at that point. You know, it's a little fuzzy exactly when yeah. that happened. And then the program operations director, which is really what I wanted. Um, we went through several people. It was Amy Margolis, Karen Rizzo, and I don't know. I think there might have been one other person in that year. Hmm. Um, I do have a recollection of Sue and Scott working together at least one year as station manager and program director. So that, and I, that believe, right. I believe it was that year because I was yeah. there when they worked together. Okay. Um, so again, and I, not to belabor too much of the executive engineer, but what was, what was that gig about? What were your responsibilities? Well, outside of scheduling, I had to make sure that everybody was properly licensed by the FCC with a third-class broadcast endorsement, mm -hmm. that all of their licenses appeared on the wall in the hallway. Um, they had to know how to operate the board, so I had to make sure they were trained on operating the board and how to take meter readings. And then I also had to make sure that they were scheduled in. So I scheduled in classes and people to train, and I scheduled in people to operate the board. So you were responsible for making sure that new recruits were trained and that they went and got their, their license, right? Right, and then and made sure that um, they were cleared, which meant that after they were trained, after they got their license, um, we also cleared them, we would give them a, a test to see whether they could, you know, how comfortable they were with operating the board and, and would they be able to operate in the situations that were needed. So a practical test kind of. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. Um, so many people have mentioned the, the, the dreaded FCC test and going into Manhattan to take that. Were, were you giving people guidance about what the test would be like or how to prepare for that? Or was it, here's what you need to know for our station, good luck with the test? I somehow remember there was a booklet. Hmm. I don't remember where the booklet came from, but I do remember there was a booklet that you studied and you, you knew because you need, it wasn't just all common sense. You needed mm -hmm. to know some FCC regulations. You needed to know some things. So somehow I think there was a booklet and that was passed around. 
um, or, you know, we would obtain from the FCC. And then we'd tell them, okay, you got to go down to 201 Varick Street. And they'd have to find their way by themselves into 201 Varick Street, like I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, go take the test. I, I seem to recall people saying there was some amount of math involved in the test, uh, something with the, with the transmitter readings or something like that. Yes, which, you, which, had to, you had yeah. to know how to do the transmitter readings. That was okay. a definite. Um, the math part came, I had started to look at and then go much further. There was a bunch of us who thought about trying to go for the first class license, hmm. and that was a lot of math. Okay. And um, we hmm. never, some people went for it. Um, I think George Musgrave, I know George Musgrave had a first class um, and some of the top engineers like Teddy Ronnenberger, Frank Grunstein, um, I think Mike Kluger might have ended up getting a first class. But we had started, I think Jim Helfgott and a couple others and myself started to study for it, but it was it was fairly intense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, okay, well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, it's good to understand uh, what your responsibilities were and what the time was like. And, and you've given us a really great picture of that. So all that said, is there a story? Is there an anecdote that you always tell when you're talking about your time at WVHC? I always talk about the storm that we had that I stayed overnight, but there are a couple other anecdotes that, you know, when you approached me about this, I, I wanted to talk about that. I, I remember, um, one of them, and there were there were a lot of people I worked with that were not necessarily on the executive board, but this one was um, a gentleman named Jim Del Bazo, who was maybe not tall in stature, but um, very great in personality, tall and big in personality. Mm. Um, and he was music director for a long time. He admittedly was on the seven-year plan at the university. <laughs> And so he would come and he'd have the records and he'd be, you know, he was into it and he was into the records. And, you know, I remember him bringing down Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf and premiering it for us. Um, Start Me Up, which was a red vinyl um, Mm. disc from the Rolling Stones as disco started to come in. But everything was always, there was always a concern about how the FCC would view us and whether they would shut us down. And we all know about the seven dirty words George Carlin said you can't say. Mm-hmm. All right? So he comes down, he starts telling, Jim starts telling us the story that he was doing changes one night and he pulled out the Who album, Who's Next? And he put, Who Are You? on. All right. And he didn't realize all of a sudden in the middle of the song, he hears, Who the fuck are you? Mm-hmm. And he was like, Oh my gosh, I just played that word on the air. What's going to happen? Well, I assume nobody was probably listening between 11 and 2 in the morning. No, no, there were no repercussions. Um, and, and Jim went on to have a big career with working with, I think it was CBS Records. And eventually, I think he even represented LL Cool J. So he, he, he made the best of his seven years plan. Mm. Mm. That's, uh, yeah, that's that scary moment when, when that, that nasty word slips out there and, and, Thankfully, no one took the time to write a letter to the FCC about it. But Jeff uh, would have had a conniption. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it happens to all of us at, at various points, I think, or at least it, yeah. it happens to a lot of us. But it is that 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 moment of being scary. No matter how well you know the music, you just you have a a moment, or you just you, you're you're 
not thinking about it. And it gets well, you know, there. you listen, we used to listen to the beginnings of the songs or, you know, you listen to it and you say, oh, that sounds good. I'm, you know, it's a new song. I'm going to play it. And you don't necessarily listen to it all the way through. Mm. So sometimes you got surprises. Mm. Um, thank you for, for sharing that, that story about Jim. I've heard his, his name a number of times and uh, uh, I'm starting to piece together a little bit. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I just want to go back for a second. Go ahead. I have other stories too. So don't forget that. <laughs> okay. Um, well, no, I want to go back for a second um, because you mentioned the, the snowstorm. Was that mm-hmm. the, the that you you stayed overnight? Um, I think that was that was seventy eight, nineteen seventy eight. There was a giant that snowstorm that that basically shut everything down, and and um, Susan and other people have talked about having to shovel the steps using cafeteria trays, and that that everybody kind of you know headed to the station to to keep things on the air. And and you said something about staying overnight. So what happened was I was a commuter, and mm. my family had one car. So my mother would often just drop me off and, you know, whatever. And I looked at her and, you know, and I said, mom, I can, you know, she couldn't come to pick me up for whatever reason. So that's why I ended up staying overnight. And I remember being there with Jim Helfcott and Steve Graziano sleeping in Studio B. We kept the station on the air, which I believe Steve and Jim have talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think I've told this story before. We the key to the upstairs office also opened up the key to the cafeteria. So we went in and we took all the salt shakers and we put them on the steps after we cleared them <laughs> so that we, we could get up and down. Um, I, I guess we must have returned the salt shakers at some point. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know if the university will send a bill for those if they're, if they're unaccounted um, I th- for. I think... I think the statute of limitations may be up on this one. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's clever. That's using, using salt. All right. I like it. That's using your, your, your noodle there. We were college students. We, we were supposed to be trying to be smart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't always make the best decisions during the, during those years, but uh, you guys kept the station on, which is, which is a testament because I know that was, that there was a huge storm and it knocked out power to certain places and and the radio was was kind of a lifeline it was it was the outside source because there really wasn't anything else yeah it mm. was mm. so um so i just want to make sure i went back and 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 heard the story about that because that's uh that's that, that's one of those things that that i ask many people about there's whether it's a, a big news event like 9-11 or or the or the blackout or uh, the Colin Ferguson shooting or a big weather event, a hurricane where some of us just run to the station and, you know, the normal people, I guess, non-radio people, they stay home or they, they, you know, <laughs> take care of whatever they have to do. And there's those of us who run to the station during these time periods. And it's just, I, I, I always want to know, like, what, what is it, you know, what do you think, what is it about us people who, gravitate to the station during these times of, of crisis or need? I think that people who are in radio and in the media like to be in the middle of things and in the middle of making history. Hmm. Um, we, I, I know if I when cause I have worked at winds for many years in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just, there's a, there's something to, there's an adrenaline, adrenaline rush, there's definitely an adrenaline rush when things ramp up and you have to rush to do it. But there's also something, I think, 
very fulfilling to know that you've been part of what was happening with history, Hmm. part of helping to do something to get that word out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's part of what draws people to the station to begin with. And then once you're part of it, you know, like you said, working at winds or working at a commercial station, that's your paycheck. You got to show up. But when you're a volunteer or a student and, you know, it's the middle of a blizzard or whatever's going on and, and you make your way to the station, there's, there's something different about the character of people. And I don't know if that's the character of the station, the people involved, the community, well, or if it's all of it. I mean, when you look at you're getting a paycheck, you're getting a paycheck, but you're not working nine to five. For four and a half years, I worked from 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. every morning. Um, that's that's a hard way to get a paycheck sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you worked extra time. You, you know, you all of a sudden the world exploded. You know, the chairman of China died and it's Monday morning and there's nobody in there and you're double timing it. It's not an easy way to get a paycheck. Right. Right. But, um, it's again the, the the character of the students and the volunteers who who come down to the station and say, right. "Well, this this is what we're doing. I'm sleeping on the couch. I'm sleeping on the floor, or whatever it is. You're doing it I because you love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're you're doing it because you love it, and there's a passion and there's a need to do it. And uh, I just love that there's so many stories through the generations of of people saying, "Well, this is what we're doing. Let's go. How do we do it? Let's figure it out." Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for, for indulging me there and, and sharing it. So I've cut you off twice now and I'm going to stop, but <laughs> you said you had other stories about other people that you wanted to make sure that, that you talk about or that you always talk about. Well, one of them I don't always talk about because, um, the person was kind of like, I started to tell the story once and they went, Shh. so I won't say who it was, oh. but was a chief engineer, very genial chief engineer. And what happened is, is that we, because we were on the air and because of times, whatever, on a Saturday, had to come in and had to do some work under the board. And while I was there, he noticed I had sandals on and decided while I was trying to segue that he should tickle my toes. (laughs) (laughs) Another one happens to uh, deal with somebody I remember, um, nice gentleman. He was, um, he, he tried very hard to be good about different things, named Mark Ruckhouse. And this kind of deals with the station. At the time, the big thing was the midnight showings of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Sure. And, you know, if if you've gone to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know that it's interactive. You know, they turn around and, you know, take a newspaper and put it over your head when it's raining. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a toast and you throw toast at the screen. Well, most people brought a water pistol for when it was raining. He decided to bring a fire, like a basic fire extinguisher. Oh, no. Did not go over well. It was like, you know, Mark, I think we need to put that away before we get thrown out. <laughs> that, that would, yeah, that would, that would cause some problems. You, there, it's not quite anything goes at a Rocky Horror Picture Show, <laughs> but 
It's close. it's fairly close, but this one really took it over the top. That would have been yeah, too much. That too much. Um, by the way, with the with the the segue story you just told, were you able to execute the segue fine? Was it was it? Yes, okay? I did. And yes, did you I kick did. him afterwards? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I, I like the gentleman. Okay. I was not going to kick anybody. Fair enough. And there, there is a there is a history not just in Hofstra radio, but I think in in all radio of of trying to make someone laugh on the air or trying to get them to break or distract them during a segue. So I think it's in in the the great tradition of of uh, messing with your colleagues that uh, <laughs> something like that happens. Very true. Um, so those are some great stories that 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 have always stuck with you, and 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 one that you you. You, you sort of uh, protected the the guilty, protected the identities to protect the guilty. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, is there a song or an event or a game or a story that in your mind defines your time at WVHC? Oh, wow. Um, I know that I fell in love with a certain song by Ricky Lee Jones called Chucky's in Love. Mm-hmm. And I think at the very end of my time on Changes, I would use that as my end song. I don't know why, but um, I just liked the song and I just felt it was a nice ending to the show. Um, there are a lot of things I remember. I remember that when the sports announcers and team were allowed to go out to California, they insisted that I be on the board. Um, that was how they felt comfortable. Um, I remember one of the things that I do remember, and somehow the tape didn't survive, was in 1980, I was, everybody was like, oh, we don't want to be on the air for the changeover from 1979 to 1980 in New Year's Eve. And I did that. Mm. I was scheduled and I did it. And I was down there with good friends, um, Wayne Kurtzman, and Jenny Eaton, who eventually became his wife, Jenny mm-hmm. Kurtzman. Um, those are some of the things I do remember as highlights of of when I was there. Mm. Those are uh, those are great stories, and and uh, that is one of the. Sometimes it can be wonderful, but sometimes it's a downfall, or at least it seems like a limitation that someone's got to be on the air on New Year's Eve. Someone's got to be there on Christmas mm-hmm. Day. Someone's got to do those things. So it sounds like you made the best of that that New Year's situation as, uh, as you're switching decades. And I have to give credit to a lot of people that, um, you know, and I would usually say, okay, it's Christmas. And I'd go to the people who would celebrate Hanukkah and say, would you be able to, you know, help out and work on Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and they would generally would, um, and and vice versa. If it was, you know, time for a Jewish holiday, I would try and go to the people who were not celebrating those holidays and get them as an, an executive engineer to fill in. Mm-hmm. You know, and and people were generally very good about saying, "Yeah, okay, I can do that." And mm-hmm. I, I I never really had, I don't recall ever having a problem. I, I, there were certain people who were just very good about, yeah, well, we can do that. Never having a problem of like, I can't fill this shift because, you know, people just, just were very helpful. Mm, that's great to hear. That's nice to hear. Um, could we step back for a second? You mentioned the, uh, the trip to California with, uh, with the sports guys. 
Do you remember, right. what do you remember about that trip? They were just so excited. Um, they, I think it was Scott Cinnamon, Todd Ant, and Steve Silverman who went. Um, and they were, they were just totally excited about it. That's all I really remember. And that, you know, it was such a big deal because they actually had to get ticket money from the, I think they got ticket money from the university because we sure as heck didn't have it in our budget in, uh, for the, for the radio station. Mm -hmm. Um, but they were willing, they were willing to do it and they flew them out, I guess, with the team or whatever else they were doing. And it, it just, it was a great thing. Mm. You know, it was, it was one of those things that only on, I think only on the Hofstra radio station could the students on people who followed Hofstra basketball, which at the time was the Flying Dutchman, mm-hmm. one of the best names I've ever heard, which we no longer have. Um, they was the only way they could really hear the game and keep track of the game. Mm. Nobody else was, you know, you had, at the time you didn't have a CNN or, or cable. Um, and, and most radio stations wouldn't be carrying, you know, a college ball game. So it, it was a fairly big thing. Uh, I've spoken with Todd Ant about that, about the, I believe it was uh, when Hofstra played uh, UCLA, which yeah, was a pretty big deal. And uh, just what a, how important that trip was to those guys and that they said, we want you, we want Karen to make sure that this goes through because, you know, from remotes and, and I'm sure you've got stories, uh, they didn't always go smoothly. So they must have trusted you a great deal to make sure that that's, this is a big deal. You don't, you don't get to go to UCLA every time. So it's quite an honor that they wanted you there. Thank you. Hmm. Um, Well, thank you for, for sharing those stories. Um, If we could go the other way, because obviously you're very involved in, in, in doing all these things. Was there ever a moment where, you thought about stepping back or, or leaving the station and thought, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm done. That really came at the end um, where I, I had spent two years scheduling as an executive engineer. Um, I was doing a lot of stuff. I wasn't, you know, I had done a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, it was a lot going on. I was graduating out. I was working at a weather service on weekends um, that, was going to go to four days a week. And I was backing off of the shows, which was good because other people needed to come in. And the show that I really enjoyed doing, like everybody else, was the rock show, which is now classic rock, but at the time was called Changes. And they were taking changing that over to the progressive pop, uh, progressive punk whatever we used to call the progressive pop post-punk progressive pop party yeah right but we used to add pizza in there Um, (laughs) and i looked at it and i'm like i'm not doing that show and i really don't need to be here and that's when i kind of said okay i'm i'm you know going to walk away from the station it was time for me Hmm. that must have been uh tough that must have been bittersweet it was a little bittersweet i think though i also at that point had had enough of some stuff that was going on, you know, with with um, different things. You know, you're working closely with people mm-hmm. and not everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, certain personalities don't work together well um, or certain personalities are in charge and they, they're not really good at necessarily 
um, how they approach things. So yeah, there was a, some of the, some of that. <clears throat> excuse me, some of that in there as well. Yeah. And so it was, I was I was ready. To be fair, one of the hardest things that I remember was you know as you said making sure that all the uh, engineering spots are are filled and making sure that people show up and uh, you know that people aren't uh, blowing off their their shifts. Working a schedule is a hard thing to do, especially when you don't have that, that, that paycheck or something else to hold over their head to say, well, you do it or you don't get paid. This is volunteer. And I can imagine two years of overseeing that schedule. That's got to wear you out. That's got to be kind of frustrating in the end. Yeah. And it, 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 see today it's a lot easier in some ways today. You can text somebody yeah. today, you know, you, you can call their cell phone, Instead, it was, well, we'll call the station and leave a message and it goes into a mailbox and, you know, you got to go check the mailbox. So somebody could call in like five hours ahead of time and you don't check the mailbox until three hours, ahead, two hours ahead of time or whatever. And you're like, oh, no, I got to fill the shift. Um, you know, it, 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 it does get wearing. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can understand that. Uh, and, and it's bringing back memories. I'm getting a mild headache. Wondering if someone's going to cover the classics on Tuesday, you know, I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> it's it's a never it's a never ending struggle." So, um, along those lines, was there was there something at the station that you wanted to do? I mean, you kind of mentioned this before, but was there something that you you wish you could have achieved or, or done while you were at the station? Uh, you know, in in retrospect, there were positions maybe I might have wanted, but. I think in the end, I really can't think of something else that I could have done. Yeah. Um, I, I acted as a producer. I acted as an announcer. I acted as an engineer. Um, you know, that, you know, maybe there was a position that I felt would have been easier for me to handle rather than scheduling. But no, I, I, I think I, I did. I did a lot. And I, I think it was all good. Mm-hmm. Um do you have a biggest accomplishment or proudest moment? You've named a number of, of really big things, but is there something that stands out as like, I'm, I'm most proud of this? It's probably one of the stupidest things you'll hear. Um, it, it, it's kind of an aside. Uh, I was, you know, when they had election night, all right, and we didn't necessarily have a newsroom or whatever, but they they pull in all the different people and they say okay, and they'd hand you a tape recorder and you'd go to um, to the different headquarters. So they sent me off to one of the headquarters, probably Republican, I don't remember which though. And all of a sudden, I'm there and I got a sense that something was happening with one of the elections that was not to their favor. They, did, they weren't happy about it. So I went over and I talked to them and they're like, uh, well, you know, da, da, da. And he said to me, well, what radio station are you with? And I'm like, WVHC at Hofstra. He goes, oh, we don't have time for you. I said, okay, I'm sitting on your desk. And when you have time for me, you can talk to me and tell me what's happening. Wow. And he gave me the interview. So I, I, I think you know, being able to just go and stand up for myself. And, and it was like a proud moment for me to say, I'm not going to get blown away just because I'm at a, a college radio station. We're, we're going to get this done. 
That's great. Uh, I, I, I love hearing that on, on so many levels because, again, you're a, a college student and you're standing up for yourself and you're getting that uh, you're getting that assignment done and that's, and that's great. And then the second part, and again, students today may not see as much of this, but for a woman in broadcasting at the time, especially a young woman, um, there is sometimes a certain level of disrespect and you stood up for yourself and said, I'm, I'm not going to be pushed around. And that's, that's great. I'd love to hear it. I've, I've had a couple of instances with disrespect, honey, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, the some of them have been in major radio <laughs> mm-hmm. um and, and you know you push through or you do what you, you need to do sometimes well well it, it, it's it sounds like you had great instincts for what was going on you're paying attention you're not just waiting for them to come to you and give you a press release you're paying attention you're following the news and you see this opportunity to get a story. And, and that's another thing that, that you jumped on that. And, uh, it shows that your talent and your instincts. Oh, thank you. I, I think I just, um, I kind of look at it as my roots are in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm a Brooklyn kid. Um, and you know, I'm generally pretty easygoing, but don't push me. <laughs> <laughs> well noted. <laughs> I will make sure I, I temper the questions from here on out. I don't like to riled up. You're you're fine, Brian. Okay. Just well, fine. We're, we're physically separated, so I'll I, I'll consider myself safe here. But um, no, it, I, I'm glad you told that story because some people hear that and they're like, "Well, did I win an award or did we do some big thing?" And some of the stories I've gotten is, you know, just showing up the first time. Just, you know, I didn't pass the announcer's test, but I kept coming back or, you know, this thing. Those are things that maybe aren't the headlines on your resume, but that's something that is important to you. And I'm so glad you shared it that way. Yeah, the perseverance um, of keep going is is something that I, I found I could do at the radio station. Um, yeah, I didn't get the show I wanted. Well, you do this show, I'll do this show. And I'll, you want to do this show and I'll do that show. And okay, by the way, since you're doing all these shows, we'll throw in another one in, that you want to do. Right. Right. So you, you, you find a way to get where you want to be. And that's, uh, that's evident. Is there something that you miss the most about the station? Sometimes I ask, you know, is there something you miss least? And obviously that's the scheduling and we won't touch that. But is there something that you miss the most about being at Hofstra Radio? The people. I really enjoyed working, and I've stayed friends with a lot of them, or we've reconnected at different events or whatever, but it's the people. It's It was a time of life where we were all going through this together, and we'd hang out together, and, and we just talk and, you know, kid around. What I miss most is the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that goes, uh, to so many different levels, whether it's just being in the office or people working together and those collaborations you were speaking about, um, it's, it's so many different levels there. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. You know, it, we, we, we were, it wasn't just the students because we had people like Elliot Lifson, mm-hmm. who he was like a big teddy bear of a, a guy who knew music inside and out. His editing skills were so like, you know, 
he, you, you listen to something and you say, that's fantastic. He goes, no, you can drive a truck through the hole in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just was always wonderfully gracious. So he was like another, he was one person. Then there were other people um, who, who did different shows that you got to meet and you may not have met on, on any other level because they weren't in the school and they weren't in your normal walks of life. And it, it just the people. Hmm. Um, would you mind talking a little bit more about Elliot? Cause he's, he's come up a couple times in conversations with uh, I've had with people who were there with me in the nineties. Cause Elliot unfortunately passed away very young yes. and he um, donated, he left a, a collection of, beautiful pristine vinyl records to us and a big part i think of my senior year we spent going through those records and cataloging them and getting them on the air but we didn't know anything about elliot and and honestly most of us forgot his name at the time because you know you're 19 20 years old you're not paying attention to that but he was an important part of the station and obviously it meant something great to him that, that he left us his record. So what else do you remember about Elliot? So Elliot, Elliot was an excellent, excellent engineer um, who also had, so he, he had a first class license. He worked for WHLI, I believe Mm -hmm. um, full time as their chief engineer. Um, He would, do some things around the station a little bit, but he, he would do, he did changes. In fact, he did the opening montage for changes, which was just wonderful. I wish I, I may have it someplace. I wish I could find it um, and share it with you. And he just did all these things. He would cart up, like we had the music for question mark and the Mysterians. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I just remember it was, it, it's funny because it's question mark and the Mysterians, um, 99 tears. And he'd find these type of things and he'd have it so we could use it and be on a cart and we could use it. And his changes show, he was just soft-spoken, um, knowledgeable, unbelievably knowledgeable about music. And he would, he would do the changes show and it was just fantastic listening to him. Mm. Um, and as a person, he was just one of the kindest people. He always, um, I, I don't remember him ever saying a bad word about a person or having a difficulty with somebody. He was just one of those really nice people. And I remember he, he was overweight and he came in and I believe he had Hodgkin's lymphoma mm. and he started to lose weight. And I said, well, that's, that's good. He says, not really, because for the radiation that I need to do, they want me to stay the same weight. Well, he beat the Hodgkin's lymphoma, but I think what it did, um, and it, you know, it's my thought that, you know, he died from a heart attack and it might've weakened his heart. Oh. And I think that that might've been what happened because um, the story I heard was that he was at home and he just passed quietly and, Somebody was like, okay, we haven't heard from him. And they went to check on him and they found him. Oh, God. Oh. That's terrible. And and I understand he was, I think, in his early 40s when this happened. Mm-hmm. So um, to, to have battled uh, lymphoma and uh, beat it, that's uh, such a tremendous 
uh, uh, wear and tear on the body. And, yeah. and, and things are different now. Treatments are different now. Right. Uh, the chemotherapy, they were, yeah. chemotherapy and radiation do take their toll. Hmm. Um, but uh, it sounds like he was uh, a very generous uh, and giving person. And, and I've heard stories about him uh, helping people get jobs and mm-hmm. helping people get on the air and bringing equipment. Uh, I think you mentioned that earlier. Uh, to Hofstra Radio. Uh, and I don't think he was a student. I think he was just, he was a volunteer. He was just someone who yeah. loved radio had, and got involved. We had a number of people who, I don't know if they were ever students that were involved, um, that that came into the radio station and did shows and would, what now would be called a community volunteer. And, and I think he was one of them. Um, and, and, and that, this is like somebody I would never have met if it hadn't been for the radio station. Right. And, and what a gift that was to, to know this person and, and to, to learn from him and, and get to share. So um, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you, you know, I, I, you mentioned earlier that the, the people is, is the thing that you, you miss the most. And uh, you mentioned that there were certain people you wanted to mention and, and Elliot and, and Jim and, and who, who else, uh, uh, was important at the station that maybe we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, there were, there were a, a number of people um, going around. I mean, one person who was very quiet, who did continuity, um, and I never really interacted much with her, but who was there all the time doing her job was Ina Bort um, going around. So Bruce Fredericks was there. Mm-hmm. He became, I think he became a chief announcer at one point um, after Wayne Kurtzman did public relations and chief announcing. Jenny Eaton was actually a music major, but she ended up in the radio station as well. And she was in charge of the classical music program. Um, I think Fredericks, Bruce Fredericks also became a music director after Jim Del Bazo. I remember Linda Dayleader was there when I first started. So it was really kind of bittersweet for me because she, she I walked in. And I'm like, I walked into the radio station, I got started, da, da, da. And there was a news, there, it still is out there, a newspaper called um, Dan's Papers, mm-hmm. out east, mm-hmm. um, Dan Retiner. And he writes these tongue-in-cheek or these funny stories. And one year he had this story, it was called The Reindeer Who Couldn't Fly. And I walked in and I looked at her and I said, you know, this is like a great, this could make a great radio play. And she said, do it. I said, What? she said do it so I ended up working and doing it I ended up writing the script which worked out very well Um, I was surprised it actually worked and then I ended up doing most of the casting and Jeffrey Krause did a lot of the engineering part of it Um, I'm working with that and even then what they did because we needed a reindeer they actually I remember him wrapping the capstan on the tape recorder the the big reel to reels and used my voice but when it came out it was like that high squeaky different voice mm. um so there were a lot of different things and linda was just you know she was just a calming presence and when it was time for her to graduate out i was kind of like huh you're leaving <laughs> um but then steve graziano i think took over and jim helfgott was there bruce farber was there who was a sports director i think at one part part very early on. 
Um, there were people like Dan DeRupo who continued on to become executive engineer, Mike Kluger. So, you know, it was always a crossover of people who were there that were graduating out and people who were just coming in. So there, I remember a lot of people. Hmm. Those are some, some great names, some familiar names and, and a few new names to me. So I'm going to step up my research and, and find out more about these people, but, but thank you for, for sharing that. Um, if you could go back in time for 60 seconds and find 18 year old Karen and say, here's a piece of advice or here's something you should do or not do. What would you say uh, in that moment? I think I would tell myself to have a little bit more confidence in myself, as strange as that may sound to you, and also to maybe work a little bit harder on my weak points. I didn't do that as much and it probably would have been helpful to look at my weaknesses and try to strengthen them. It's good advice for, for anyone. Um, would 18-year-old Karen have listened? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, everything is a learning process. The whole of life is actually a learning process. Yeah. And going through the different things that you do at a radio station, the different... The things that were difficult, the things that were not so difficult, the opportunities that were given to me, and there were a lot. Um, it's all a learning experience. And I, I do believe that in life, everything that happens is a learning experience, whether it's good or bad. There's there's nothing, you know, that everything just is a learning experience. Nothing hmm. is wasted. Hmm. Wise words. Um, okay, so hypothetical situation. You get a call from John Mullen at the station. They need someone to come in and engineer a sports event or to do a remote operations or, or election night or whatever it might be. Uh, would you be willing to go in and get behind the board and, and help out the station? Well, I don't think they want me doing sports. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to admit, a couple of times I did have to write sports when I was at WINS. Um, remote operations, I don't know if I could... Hand, well, I probably could, with a little bit of instruction, handle some of the uh, board. But I and I would I would go in. Um, I've gone back when they had the alumni. Mm -hmm. They had like alumni times where you could go back and do a show that you had done before. I've done that before. Hmm. Um, I've I've gone on back when Baja would do her election night. Mm -hmm. I was on the panel. She usually had me on the panel. Um, so I've gone back several times already. Um, so if they needed something and I could do it and I felt I could do it, you know, don't ask me to do sports. Play by play is not my thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd help out. Okay. I have no doubt about that. Um, obviously, your time at Hofstra Radio was important to you and, and friendships and relationships and experience. Um, but a lot of people ask, you know, well, what did what did so and so do after college, or what did they do in their professional lives? So, could you give us a sense of the things that you brought with you from Hofstra into your professional and adult life? Uh, there were a lot of things I brought from Hofstra. Let me just give you a quick rundown of my crazy varied career. Mm -hmm. While I was at Hofstra, my friend Wayne was working for a weather service. Um, said, "You want to take a ride into the weather service with me?" So I did. And 
the guy there who owned the web service looked at me and said, you have a nice voice. You want to make a tape? So I did. And he's like, you want to work on a, you want to do an internship. And that's where I ended up working first. So that there went that. Then from there, I went over to shadow traffic for a little while. Then I went to one of the dinners and I met Howard Liberman and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm at loose ends. I got married. I'm, I'm really not doing anything. He says, Oh, come to wins. Try and be a writer. Well, they weren't ready for me as a writer, but they said you could start at the bottom, which I did eventually becoming a writer. Um, things were changing. My kids were older. So I decided I'd leverage over into something that was more of a regular, not having to go in for 5 a.m. or 3 p.m. So I went over to the Diocese of Rockville Center into their Office of Public Information, which was public relations, um, just before everything broke with the sex abuse crisis. So I was there for four and a half years. And then after that, things kind of just didn't gel. Um, but what I learned from Hofstra and being at the radio station was that there were deadlines and you had to meet deadlines and you had to persevere and you just had to keep going. Mm -hmm. And that's what I took out of it, you know, to, to put the time in, to meet the deadlines, to, to do the work. And I took that out of Hofstra um, from the radio station. I think deadlines was probably the biggest thing that I, I really felt, you know, if somebody gave you a deadline, you couldn't go, you know, oh, well, I, I can't do that in this time period. Well, you had dead air and, and you were you were sunk. Right. Right. And I, I think just from the stories you've, you've talked about today, it's you have to be uh, adaptable to mm -hmm. conditions. You have to be willing to stand up for yourself. You have to be willing to uh, speak up for yourself. You have to be willing to take chances. These sound like all things that you, you did while you were at Hofstra Radio, and obviously they, they translated into your career. Adaptability is probably one of the bigger things, too, that I didn't mention. Um, being able to shift on a dime. You know, like, oh, that isn't working. So let, let's go to the next thing and, you know, you know, not panic, just keep right. moving. Right. Or here's this breaking news story or here's a, mm -hmm. a piece of equipment that's not working or whatever it is. You got to you got to figure it out and keep going to avoid the dreaded dead air. So, yes. Wow. Um, Karen, this has been phenomenal. Um, you've always been uh so wonderful to talk to. And, and, and it was at least 20 years ago or so I, I wandered back to the station for a little while and, and did some alumni stuff and you were always so welcoming and, and so generous oh, with you. your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, and I, I'm certain there's more stories. I didn't, I haven't planned another volume here, but having this <laughs> conversation, I, I feel like I've, I've got to get, I've got to get more stuff going because I'm sure you have more stories and uh, this has been just lovely. I don't Thank know you. how much I remember at this point. <laughs> Well, I think you did a great job, and, and I, I'm just I'm so charmed by the stories, and, and I'm so thankful. You're easily charmed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time. This has been great. Oh, you are, you are most welcome, Brian. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and to be part of this wonderful venture that you started and continue, and, and it's just wonderful that you are creating this audio history of this radio station, um, which is just absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for the work you have put in. <laughs>